So I have a question before I get started. Who was here yesterday morning when I was here? A few of you, not so many. Oh, well, that's good then. I can repeat some of the things I said. <laughs> I wasn't exactly up. You can go now, Harold. I wasn't exactly um, making a, you know elaborate Dharma talk. You can imagine I was sleeping most of the day. Um, but what I'd like to do is sort of take on, um, continue on some of what I was saying yesterday, which I'll just recap briefly. Uh, I was talking about how we, uh, in, in theory, understand about the eight vicissitudes, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, as our general experience, and how these things are constantly coming and going in our lives. And we know this in one way, on a certain level, intellectually, theoretically, but most of us, most of the time, don't really behave as though we know this. Because what we do, of course, is we want just four and not the other four. We want the, the nice ones and we don't want the other ones. Not just that we, um, we don't behave that way. When things are fine, pleasant, when there's praise and when there's pleasure and so on, um, we tend to go into kind of cruise mode. Ah la la, everything's great. That's how it's supposed to be. And yet as soon as we experience loss or blame or pain or anything else, we immediately become very alert and try and do something about fixing it. Blaming, frustration, etc. We get very charged up when we, we suffer from the, the downside of these ups and downs of the world, of our experience. In spite of that we should know better, that we understand the theory, we behave a lot as though um, we've forgotten that this is inevitable and part of being a human being, living on this plane. So what I'm thinking about tonight is, of course, me suffering in pain today and yesterday, and uh, what it's like being on the downside of, you know, physical health, for example, which mostly, I'm very fortunate to say, I'm really healthy and I don't get sick very much, so I'm not very good. <laughs> when it comes to suffering in this way, not that it's been too deadly, but it's been really, really uncomfortable and, you know, we all know what that's like, everything aching and squirming around in bed and everything. <clears throat> so, um, the thing about when we experience the difficulties of this world, As I just said, we get very motivated to engage ourselves with something. What I heard years and years ago, um, apparently when I believe it was Kalu Rinpoche was visiting Salt Spring Island where he eventually had a three-year retreat, one of the, the first in the West three-year retreat sites up on a mountain on Salt Spring. While going nearby on a ferry with a few of his devotees, he said, Beware those sleepy southern Gulf Islands. Because those lovely southern Gulf Islands, of which Salt Spring is one of them, they're so lovely, it's such paradise that beware, you tend to go to sleep. We tend to not wake up when everything's fine. We go, great, this is how it's supposed to be, and now I can kick back. So it's really important, actually, to keep being aware of, am I taking things for granted, am I cruising here, or am I actually still looking at what's happening? Am I waking up? Do I know what's going on? <clears throat> As I said yesterday, 
this is really, it, it's absolutely essential for us to remember this and to get this more than in theory, to just like really keep being aware of it so that it sinks into our, our um, experience, so that it's, it governs how we live, not just stays up in useless theory, is that um, the ups and the downs belong to each other. You cannot have ups without downs. And as I said yesterday afternoon, it's like a wave. It's like a lot of waves. <laughs> but when you have a wave, you can... A wave is got two sides to it. It's got an upside and a downside. And you cannot have one without the other. It's not a wave. We don't um, like this. We don't agree with this. We don't want this to be so. We want just the four and not the eight. <coughs> so... Um, this is just a little story about um, how motivated we get when we struggle, when there is trouble, how immediately it calls forth a lot of energy for ourselves and a lot of reactivity and a lot of activity and so on. And this is one of your stories and this was probably some of you have read this and it was from the San Francisco Chronicle and it was just before Christmas a year and a half ago. It's, I'm going to read it to you. It's called The Bound Whale Freed. Do you remember this story? I'm going to read it anyway because it's such a sweet story. December the 14th, 2005. There was a female humpback whale who had become entangled in a spiderweb of crab traps and lines. She was weighted down by hundreds of pounds of traps that caused her to struggle to stay afloat. She also had hundreds of yards of line wrapped around her body, her tail, her torso, and one line tugging in her mouth. A fisherman spotted her just east of the Farallone Islands, outside of the Golden Gate, and radioed an environmental group for help. Within a few hours, the rescue team arrived and determined that she was in such bad state that the only way to save her was to dive in and untangle her, a very dangerous proposition. One slap of her tail could kill a rescuer. They worked for hours with curved knives and eventually freed her. When she was free, the divers say, she swam in what seemed like joyous circles. She then came back to each and every diver one at a time and nudged them, pushing them gently around. She thanked them. Some said it was the most incredibly beautiful experience of their lives. The guy who cut the rope out of her mouth says her eye was following him the whole time. He will never be the same. Maybe we, um, may we all be so blessed and as fortunate in the new year to be surrounded by those who love us enough to help untangle us from that which is binding us and to remember to thank them. Such a sweet story. But I just think of how much energy went into that particular situation, which of course was called for. She was in such dire straits. But how typically we don't put a lot of energy into times when everything's fine. We just take them for granted, you know. We just, familiarity breeds content and everything's okay. Let's not bother about the whales. We only get excited about them when they're in really bad shape, don't we? So it's just a way to think about how we respond to the world. We react when there's difficulty. We get all excited and dramatic. When we meet people, we don't say, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, everything's great. Weather's pretty benign. We just immediately launch into what's dramatic and what's problematic. Oh, you'll never believe what happened to me last week. We just tune out a lot of the time. And this whole practice is about waking up. So um, it's just useful to be aware of how we do this. today, especially this morning, I was really, really uncomfortable. I try not to take drugs, you know. I try to keep that really to a minimum, but by 10 past 11, I was just really going through it this morning, so then I took my Tylenol. But, you know, I was so practicing. 
It was fantastic. I was really able to be with, this is what's happening, the truth is, this is uncomfortable, these are the sensations, this is what they feel like, the bare experience of the discomfort. And so I did not proliferate into, oh my God, what am I going to do? Am I going to make it there tonight? What are they going to think? I did not need to. I was able to call on my practice and just be with the discomfort, you know, and the unpleasantness and finally decide when I needed to take a pill and stuff. And I just am so grateful for being able to not get all upset, which is, of course, what we tend to do when we get up, when we, when we suffer, when we struggle. It's great. When uh, I was in Burma last November, which was the first time I had ever been to Burma, second time I'd ever been to Asia, I went to a little ashram when I was 22 or something, in India to, to a guru and uh, it was all very cushy and it was very well received so this is the, my, my second trip and uh, it was actually really quite challenging I have to say I mean it was thoroughly uncomfortable it was filthy it was hot I was sweating there were flies everywhere the radio was on sometimes especially the first few days I was there you hear about these stories I don't know if anyone's been to practice in Burma but the local people t if you have if you're lucky enough to have electricity you turn on your radio for your neighbors within a mile or two <laughs> and they tend to do everything active wise at about between four and six in the morning because it gets really hot later so 4 a.m. blaring radio just nearby you know really 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 loud and there's uh, three things you hear on the radio in Burma at least when I was there one is um, music which you know everyone has their own kind of taste of music that wasn't my kind of taste of music I have to say after a while it gets a little monotonous um, party political broad, basically generals doing a bunch of political talk and then chanting the Dharma <laughs> amazing the refuges and the precepts pouring out across the fields you know and then back to some political stuff and then <laughs> music <laughs> till two o'clock the next morning then I, I took a while to learn how to keep the mosquitoes out of my mosquito net. I didn't know that you had to tuck it in underneath your mattress to keep them from getting in there. So I just dropped the mosquito net and trapped in with me all the mosquitoes that were now living <laughs> underneath my bed. I mean, it took me a while to learn all this and clean everything to my satisfaction and so on and so forth. So I was really struggling for this first period of time. And then the... Um, it's not a translator, the interpreter, Marthette, who was here last week. Who was here when, when uh, they were here? Not that many of you. Some of you. Um, well, anyway, her name is Marthette, his uh, interpreter. Um, I spoke to her uh, after about, you know, a week of this struggling and not sleeping and, you know, discomfort and everything. And I said, I'd like a private interview because I'd like to leave. I wanted to say my respects and pay my money and get out of there. And unfortunately, I took with me um, a lonely planet guide. So I was busily reading all about much comfier places in Burma to go to practice, you know, where it's quiet and where it's cool and where it's beautiful. And, uh, and so she was amazing. And she said to me, um, I understand, I understand. And then she said, can I ask you a question? Hope you don't mind. She was very sweet. And she said, um, do you think it's possible with the music and the sweating and the mosquitoes and the dogs and the smoke and do you think it's possible to be okay? And I kind of went, duh. Why did I come to Burma anyway? Did I come to Burma to be comfy? I came to be free, you know, like, and, and this is perfect. Here I was totally caught up with the pain of it and the problem of it and making all my plans about what to do and how to get out of there. And 
instead of, oh, right, can I just be here with this? And of course, I could and did and stayed and was really glad I stayed, needless to say. We tend to not be aware when it's difficult. We just get frustrated, get try and get away from it. The difficulty is actually incredibly valuable. In fact, Uteshaniya himself, he would say, struggle is good, and he'd you know, rub his hands together gleefully. There was a, a woman, how, how it works in his um, monastery is that uh, we would have a, an interview, but there would be a group of us, and there would be like five or six of us together, and we'd go and have this interview with him and talk to him about our practice and questions and stuff for as long as we could, you know, an hour and a half, two, two and a half hours. And this one woman in our particular group had um, a roommate come. Mostly they were, we, you know, had two people per room. And she was by herself for a while, and then she got a roommate. And uh, he is not at all um, rigid about do this, don't do that, sit for an hour, be quiet. He's just like, do whatever you do, but know why you're doing it. You know, so if you want to talk, know why you're talking and know what you're saying and know what's coming up. So, you know, use anything as a way to wake up and see what's going on. And so when this woman was saying that she was really, this roommate had come, the roommate wanted to talk to her all the time. And she didn't want to talk. She wanted to practice. She was only there for three weeks. She wanted to be quiet. And so he'd say, great. As soon as your roommate arrives, fantastic practice. As soon as you see her, now watch yourself. Are you full of aversion? Are you judging? Are you, are you trying to scheme how to avoid her? Or are you noticing what you're doing? These problems in our lives serve to help us, if we don't get caught, see what's going on, see our reactivity, see our, our blaming, see our stuff. We, are, we can see it with the pleasant, but we tend to not notice it so easily because it's more mellow. So we tend to fall asleep in those sleepy southern Gulf Islands. So use the difficulty because we're less asleep then so we can really see how we're reacting to things. Um, what happens is if we do this, just looking at the clock and realizing how am I going to keep talking for another half an hour? Oh well, <laughs> I'll answer questions if I run out of things to say. Um, one of the things, there are three um, aspects of behavior which really are helpful in this, in looking at the difficulty. Um, they are three of the parmies. The parmies are those ten ways of behaving which we can work on and, and develop and perfect. It said the Buddha was perfecting in all of those lifetimes before he became the Buddha. Three of them are extremely useful when we are dealing with difficulty. One of them is kindness. Because it's difficult to be in the difficulty or the pain or the upset. If we can, it's a really good, it's useful uh, habit to, to get into as soon as we're struggling to bring in kindness. Be kind, be sympathetic for the fact that we're struggling. Um, it may be, be, you know, have some compassion for yourself. It may be, be kind for yourself for having got all upset. Maybe forgiveness because you blew it and you got, you know, mad at somebody or something. But bring some kind heart when we are suffering. It's said to be a soothing practice. And it does. It's, it's, it's totally reassuring and calming. And as you probably know, Thich Nhat Hanh says that when we're upset, it's like we have a three-year-old that's crying. And uh, metta or kindness is like 
what we would do to that three-year-old who's crying. You'd rock it, you know, and you'd reassure it. It's okay. You know, you just stubbed your foot. You'll be all right. It's that attitude of friendliness and forgiveness and being on your own side that's invaluable when we're encountering difficulty. Another one um, is being with things as they actually are. Truthfulness. Like this morning, when I was there thrashing around in bed and being miserable, being able to say, this is this, this is a headache, these aching joints, I'd just be able to be with my aching joints just as they were, just aching joints. This is just uncomfortable. The whole thing of truthfulness, I mean, it's an enormous topic and I won't go into it in detail, but our practice is to, is to be with things just as they are, without all the proliferation, without all the reactivity and everything. And this is extremely essential when we're facing difficulty, whatever that may be, loss, you know, or somebody's blaming us or we're in an argument, that kind of a thing. It's like, okay, that's what's happening, I'm arguing. It, it, it brings us into the present moment and brings us back from being caught up in all of our strategizing, how to fix it, how to get rid of it, how to improve it, how to blame, and so on. So truthfulness, just the facts, as the, um, the judge in court says, just the facts, please. <laughs> That's so useful. We tend to add all the extra on top of the facts, so just keep it to the, what's going on here. It's really useful. Truth-telling meditation. It's actually a huge relief because we cut through all of the extra embellishing and just get down to what's, what's going on here is I'm frustrated. Oh, right. It just diminishes immediately the drama that we tend to you know, build around it. And the third one, which is invaluable, is patience. Here we are in the midst of whatever the difficulty is we're in. And um, we need to just be able to hang in there with it. So we really need a lot of patience. I used to hate this whole idea of patience. I mean, when I, one of my earliest cine films that my father used to take, cine films way before videos, and I was a little girl, was me stamping my foot and pounding my fist. Like, I'm just not a patient type of person. And the idea of patience would drive me crazy. I'd ask my mother. Twice I remember asking her, what does patience mean? And being furious at the answer. And asking her, what does compromise mean? And being furious at the answer to that, too. I don't like this kind of thing. So patience. Patience, though, it doesn't, it doesn't really mean put up with so much as um, it's a kind of unglamorous courage. I love that phrase. It takes some strength to hold steady. You know, it actually is a very strong force to be able to just be here with this. So it, it isn't about wanting it to be over and going ahead in time and either impatiently or patiently waiting for the next thing. It's much more immediate. It's just hanging in here, just being with this. And when we, one of the things I find the most useful is remembering that everything's going to change and this is not how it's going to be forever. This is just a temporary situation. And of course, emotion, which is so dramatic for us, is just, you know, coming and going. So the remembering that everything will change and like these are weather patterns is really allows us to just hang in there when it's difficult. It's really useful. Not long suffering, not resignation. 
not grinning and bearing, not pretending that it's okay when it's not okay. But just like, okay, this is difficult, this is, I'm right in the midst of this, tell the truth. And just gently stay with it, stay with it. We don't. We, we do everything we can to get away from it. And if we can't get away, we blame people. We justify and all of that. It's much simpler than that. Tolerance is the word Suzuki Roshi uses for this. And I think that's a good word. Being able, can we tolerate this? Can you handle this? Like she said to me in you know, Burma, can you be okay? You know, still have the radio blaring at four o'clock in the morning. Is it possible? Well, of course it's possible. Way more is possible than we think. So yeah, I can handle that. It's just that. It just means a capacity to just hang out with the difficulty. We need to learn that. We need to train ourselves to be able to do that. And then it's, it's okay. You can put up with it. Krishnamurti said, do you want to know what my secret is? I don't mind what happens. Brilliant. Rilke says, let all things happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. The trouble for us, of course, is that when we're in any kind of a state, we solidify that state. And we believe, because of the way our minds work, that this is it. And we believe this is our reality. And we forget that it's just a temporary experience and it's passing. And so that's what makes the difficulty so hard to bear. Because we just feel we're stuck in it and that's it. Of course we never are, but that's what we tend to believe when we're in the middle of it. So, no feeling is final, says Rilke. Of course, how we function, this is what I was saying yesterday, because this is how we've learned to be um, as human beings, how to survive, is that our happiness and unhappiness we pin on the changing circumstances. We really believe that if they're up, if we get the four nice vicissitudes, then we're happy. And if we get the four bad ones, then we're not happy. We completely depend on these changing circumstances for our well-being. That's the problem. So what we need to do is, instead of focusing on the circumstances, is focus on how we're responding to them. How many times do we need to hear this? We need to hear this thousands and thousands and thousands over and over and over because we don't, especially when they're loaded. So if they're pleasant, we may, but probably not, notice, oh, I'm fine, I'm cruising, I'm feeling good. But as soon as they're difficult, we really focus on the difficult thing. The person, the person who's being so nuisance, argumentative, the sounds, whatever, we just focus completely on these difficulties and we won't actually be able to handle them if we do that. What we need to do is to notice, how am I now with this? We won't have tolerance, we won't have patience, we won't even have kindness if we just look at the problem. Look at yourself. How are you now? That allows us to have some space from the problem. But we focus right on the, diff- right on the pain, right on the pain in the back, whatever it is, the headache. If we cannot do that and look at, how am I? How is my response now? Am I struggling with this? Then we're removed somewhat from it right away. We're not like, it, you know, it isn't right in our face and challenging us. We've taken a step back. 
and then immediately it's subsided somewhat and then we have some choice how do I want to be with this Utejaniya is always saying I mean his main teachings are it's there's the objects of our experience and then there's the mind that's aware of them focus on the mind everything happens in the mind there's all these things happening endlessly and your mind is what you make of them well instead of focusing on all the things that are coming and going good and bad up and down focus on your mind because that's where you get to experience how you experience it he says your mind is like the, the office you go to a factory and you want to know what's going on there you don't go to the you know the back corner of the factory you go to the office and find out what's going on well it's your mind that's where it's all happening so notice that what I'd like to do is um, not continue too long because I'm not very well but I'm just going to finish with this little story and then I'll be happy to answer your questions if you have any questions here's a little story this is I'm deciding to read it to you because I think it's relevant to illness it's called dirt exposure boosts happiness exposure to dirt may be a way to lift mood as well as boost the immune system UK scientists say lung cancer patients treated with friendly bacteria normally found in the soil have anecdotally reported improvements in their quality of life mice exposed to the same bacteria made more of the brain's happy chemical serotonin the Bristol University authors told the journal neuroscience common antidepressants work by boosting this brain chemical dirt play a lack of serotonin is linked with depression in people the scientists say more work is now needed to determine if the bacterium mycobacterium vacci has antidepressant properties through activation of serotonin neurons the lead researcher Chris Lowry said these studies help us understand how the body communicates with the brain and why a healthy immune system is important for maintaining mental health they also leave us wondering if we shouldn't all spend more time playing in the dirt the work could also help experts understanding why an imbalance in the immune system leaves some individuals vulnerable to mood disorders like depression he added there's a picture of a pig here and it's as happy as a pig (laughs) I just think about immune systems you know having been ill a little bit here I actually believe in that I grew up in the country and was often messing around in the soil so I think that's a good thing so thank you for listening I hope this is helpful Please ask me some questions about any of this. Yes, hi. Bill, could you wait for the mic? Um, I can't resist chiming in about the dirt. Um, Have you ever heard of Howard Lyman and his book, Mad Cowboy? Um, No. He's the guy that went on Oprah and got them both sued by the Texas cattle industry for talking about the possible dangers of by eating, talking about about the possible dangers of eating cattle oh, oh. so uh, he was a fourth generation I think Montana rancher oh. and uh, uh, first three generations no chemicals small family farm but he went to college and learned uh, uh, factory farming and uh, he said there was never a chemical I didn't like and and uh, he went on went on like that for decades and it almost killed him uh-huh. and then he saw the green light and uh, lying there in the hospital bed 
you didn't know it, but he's about to become a vegetarian and in fact a vegan. He's, you know, he reflected on the horrible quality of the earth after all those years of pesticides and whatnot. It just turned into just dust, nothing. And he was lying there and thinking back to when he was a, a kid and how he just loved, loved to run his hands through the dark, loamy earth to the point that when he went to a, a friend's house, again, when he was a kid, um, <laughs> his, his friend's mother was rather fastidious and told him, you, you, you can't have dinner with us unless you go wash your hands. And to him, it was no brainer. He just didn't eat. <laughs> I wonder how healthy he was. <laughs> yes, please. I'm not sure how to ask this question, um, but it, it has to do with the different lineages or the different kinds of teaching. Mm. You trained initially with Goenka and then... Um, with other lineages and um, I'm I just came from a, a three day sitting course with Goenka and was reminded of not with him but with assistant teachers and was reminded of the insistence of using just this one technique and um and I'm aware that, especially here, there are so many different techniques that are, you know, sort of open and um, look at how your mind is reacting and that. And on on one hand, I see that they all sort of say the same thing, but on the other hand, the teachers of them, or at least Goenka and, and others say, no, this is, this is the way that you really need to follow. So I wonder if you could speak to that. And ultimately, I believe that um, we're our own author. You know, We need to decide what's the best thing for each one of us. And we do have both the blessing and the curse in the West of having all these different things. We can find what suits us, and it can take us a long time because there's so many... Um, I found myself, for instance, that doing that practice for my first 10 years or so um, was unbelievably useful because I really did learn concentration and I really did learn how to calm down and to get very steady and stable and to really direct my attention very specifically. So it was an excellent, excellent practice. Um, but then I kind of felt like I grew out of it because I wanted some other aspects to be noticing as well. And uh, I didn't even in my case it wasn't like I went looking I just found myself at a retreat with some Western teachers and the language that they used and the way they described being present was so much more um, friendly and I felt like I could really understand it I thought I could relate much better but I think I may have been more lost if I hadn't had such a good foundation of concentration so I think we need um, a good foundation of something and I don't there's different ways we can use, but some, staying with something for a good period of time and getting pretty steady and stable because we need to train this very scattered mind. And then when it's more stable, we can then with that now useful tool, 
start looking at different aspects of our experience. And sometimes we discover that we need a lot of metta, for instance, which we never had done before. We never had realized that that was a part that our life was missing, for instance. And so now we might find that's a really useful way of practicing for a while. Or um, we may, um, so what I have done, I, once my mind was more steady, then I could look at some aspect of practice and being able to really check that out and, and say, I'm just going to work on the hindrances for this next little while and see what that's like and understand how they show up in my life and what I make of that. So I, I think that initially to go all over the place is too distracting and too complicated. So I would say pick one or two things and go for them for quite some time. And who's to say what quite some time is, of course. Because it's different, everyone's minds are really different. Some people you know, need a lot of training because their mind is a really, really a scattered kind of mind. And some people's minds are well-behaved minds. And they don't need quite so long. But until the mind is able to do what we want it to do and to look at and see what we, we want it to see, to become our servant rather than our master, I think it's a good idea to stay fairly simple. That's my advice. And so you're the only one who can know that. So that if you start exploring some other aspect of practice, some different way of looking at things, but you discover you get all over the place and scattered, that might not be the right time. Maybe you need to simplify. And so actually balance balances everything in practice. And at times, even in not just in the length of your practice over years, but in any moment, what do I need to be in balance now? Do I need some kindness? Do I need some interest? Do I need some staying close? You know, so that's connecting and sustaining the attention. What do I need to be really here? And we, you know, we need to all the time be exploring that, not get locked into one method. I think we have, it's a huge advantage to have different ones, but not right off the bat. I would. However, Utejaniya, for instance, he says, um, he doesn't teach concentration in the beginning. He says even, he used to, but he says even the beginning people, he just teaches them to keep a consistency watch, a consistent watch over your attitude all the time. For him, concentration is all the time being mindful, continuous mindfulness. And not just mindfulness, but mindful of your attitude all the time. That's concentration to him. It's not staying noticing one thing. It's just noticing any of the different things that happen, but keep paying attention to how your mind is with them all. And he teaches people right from the beginning how to do that, rather than stay on your breath or stay in your body or keep repeating your metaphrases. He just says it's not necessary to be that concentrated. Concentration is consistent rather than limited, narrow. Interesting. That's a whole topic. I'm happy to talk with us about that at some point, about the difference between and the pros and cons of uh, deep concentration practice or more open receptive practice. Because I've learned a lot from being with him in that way. I've done a lot of concentration practice myself, jhana practice and so on. And, and, uh, and I've learned a lot about the disadvantages as well as the advantages of that. But for me, I really have appreciated first training and getting, getting more uh, clear about you know, my mind being better behaved. And then I can open up and look at different things and be able to see them clearly. I think that's very useful. Hmm. I just wanted to make a comment on, um, based on your question and just my experience. 
I think two things about what Cohen Kaji says uh, bother me. One is that this is the only way, and there clearly isn't. There are lots of ways, and we know that people attain arhantship through lots of different ways. So it clearly cannot be the only way, especially when the Satipatthana Sutta itself mentions uh, uh, all, all sorts of ways of doing meditation. Um, Buddha's main sutta on which all the teachers supposedly quote and base their practice on. The second thing that really bothers me about the Goenka technique is this. It is taught by teachers and implemented by teachers who are not necessarily gone very deep. It's taught by that gone very deep. That's done by especially people who are um, implementing discipline um, are actually very shallow and they cannot really exemplify what you are trying to achieve. So, whereas, so I, I would say try and at least find somewhere where you can work with monks or work with teachers who have a 20, 30 year practice and who you say, I would like to be like that and who are kind and at least open to other things. I would be very skeptical. And I, I, I mean, I really deeply appreciate what Goenkaji has done, especially in India. And most of my family has really benefited. But these two aspects of uh, his teachings really bother me. And when you go and work with, especially with monks, even from a discipline that is very strict, and I have worked with Upandita and his disciples, when people have gone into a monastery at age of six or seven and worked on themselves for 26 years, 36 years, it's just it's, it's beautiful to see. Never mind how strict they are. They might be, there were people, I just came back from a retreat. There's somebody, you know, the teacher used to come. At, I, was, I was in a tent, so he could stand outside the tent and say, Yogi, it's 5 a.m. And one day I was tired. But I respected how he was so much. And that he really, really, really cared about my practice, that I would get up at 5 a.m. and I did not mind his coming and waking me up. He was very strict, but there was just incredible amount of kindness. And he really, really cared for every student and their practice. So I would say just definitely try out something else, especially because <laughs> they told you this is the only way. I would, I would you know, get up and walk out. And I too would worry about somebody saying this is the you know this is it because it depends on the person and there are different people who need different things that's clear to me you know our minds are all slightly different we're all wired differently it was great for you yeah yeah I really appreciated it and I found that there were some limits there that I didn't appreciate that I rebelled against after a while yeah over here, hi. Okay. Um, when you say that uh, you transcend, that transcending ple the pleasure and pain um, polarity is beneficial, would you say that's attributed to a rigorous thought process or a rigorous feeling process? And... Um, let me say why I'm phrasing it that way. I'm at a point with myself where I'm so reliant upon feeling 
that I thought I would get a feeling that transcending pain and pleasure, like I would, I would have a feeling that would show me that wisdom. And I'm not much of a rigorous thinker with myself. It's all feeling-based. And now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, is it a rigorous thought process and not a feeling that would get me to that aha moment <laughs> where I, I just accept the mosquitoes and the coldness and the getting out of bed and mm. whatever? Um, you know, really and truly in my experience, it's a result of years of practicing rather than a thing that I can make happen. And so I find myself, like this morning I found myself, not complicating the fact that I was having a, a painful time. It wasn't that I got myself there so much as that I was just grateful that I was able to know this is painful, this is unpleasant, this is painful here, without proliferating in a bunch of thoughts. Because I have practiced for a long time not proliferating thoughts, so then when I was with this particular thing, I didn't then roll in a bunch of frustration or any extra. The simple practice of being in the present moment and not rolling in papancha and not getting reactivated, not adding all the extra mental stuff and all the extra emotional stuff, just keeping coming to this moment bears fruit. And then the fruit that it bears is then when we're in the midst of even difficulty and pain, it wasn't like I would say it's stringent. What was the word you used? Vigorous. Rigorous. 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 That sounds Goenka-like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm getting from hearing you, your response that I literally have, feel like I have to muster motivation to transcend pleasure or pain. I and would, you're saying I would, there's no, no mustering. I, I don't think that's wise myself. I think what's really helpful is kindness and curiosity. And not, not the, the driving thing. I think there are too many of us in the West who are strivers. And I think that the pushing, it's always goal-oriented. It's all, I want to get this together. I want to be better. I don't want, it's all ego. You know, really what reveals how things are is if we, if we look honestly, kindly, with some gentleness about it, and really be interested in what's going on here, it reveals itself to us. We don't have to... The have-to part is extra, and it actually doesn't work. It's miserable. And then it really sets us up for judging, failure. It's a tyranny of idealism, is one of my phrases. And I think that's, you know, we need to be realistic. You know, so we see, in a moment, I'm struggling, and we see that, and then we go, oh. And as soon as we see that moment of struggle, it subsides, because we've seen it. Even if it doesn't completely go away, it subsides somewhat. The reason things proliferate is because you don't realize we're doing them. So look and see what's happening. That's all. Just look and see. It's way simpler. How many times have you heard this? It's way simpler than we think. We're just wanting to be with what's happening. Just see what's happening. And then as we look, we see, oh, I'm adding all this extra. Oh, I'm off in the future. I'm full of anxiety. Oh, that's what's happening. But there's this kind of like, oh. It's not like, oh, I shouldn't do it. It's more like, oh, that's interesting. There's a kind of lightness about the whole thing. It's got that flavor of freedom. Freedom isn't driving and, you know, rigor. Freedom is just like... Oh, well. <laughs> Thank you.
feel better. I didn't hear you. What did you say? I said I feel better. Good. <laughs> All right. Okay, so um, just two little things I would like to say at the end of our evening. Um, one of them is, and I won't say this in future, but I just want to say this one time as I'm first here. Um, anything that you give me in the way of dana to allow me to be able to come here and be with you and to teach in this way, I just want to say how lovely it is to be able to be given to, to support me. This is my livelihood. It's such an incredible thing to actually be given to instead of charge. Anyway, thank you so much. Whatever you do, offer me. Um, and the other thing is, whoever would like an interview at any time for these next two and a half weeks that I'm here, um, you can come and speak to me. But the best way, I don't have a cell phone that works here. I don't have a cell phone. And so um, my email address, hmartin, Heather Martin, at Salt Spring, that's the island where I live, wireless. Dot com H Martin at saltspringwireless.com. Inez knows that. Cheryl knows that. Um, I don't know who else knows that. Anyway, speak to me again if you can't remember that. But that's the best way to contact me if you want to make an appointment for an interview at some point or any such thing. Sorry? Oh, good. Okay. So I'm accessible if anybody wants a conversation with some teacher other than Gil. Have a lovely week. Thank you so much. Nice to be here.